Hi, this is Mark. I wanted to take the opportunity before this episode started to address the uh, situation that we all find ourselves in regarding uh, COVID-19. This episode was written and recorded before the news that Disney World and Disneyland would be closing for the remainder of March. And I felt like it was important, since this episode deals with the subject of visiting Disney World, that I should address that. So I know that there's a lot of uncertainty about uh, how this pandemic is going to affect uh, all of us. Uh, It's already affected many of you in larger cities uh, in the United States and in other countries. So it is important for us to take a step back and recognize that we might have to start changing our some of our habits. Um, going to places where there will be large groups of people intermingling might be something that we just have to say no to for a while. And I know that's very frustrating and, dis- and disheartening for people that have been planning trips or have been, been meaning to get together with friends or family. So I understand that it's, it's a very stressful time, but I just wanted to acknowledge that before this episode because this episode is all about having an experience in a place like Disney World where I myself as a Star Wars fan, fan found it to be very um, rewarding. But even still, as much as I want to go back, I want to do it when it's safe to go back. I want to do it when it's not going to put other people at risk. So I just wanted to let everybody know that we at Clashing Sabers are thinking of everyone and want everyone to take the necessary precautions, wash your hands, do the social distancing, um, whatever it takes. Um, we're all going to get through this. We're going to do this together. We have a very strong community, and I really believe in the power of the connections that we make as a community. And I think that we can step up and do this. Um, so anyway, I appreciate you letting me rant for a little bit at the start of the episode. Uh, I'll now let the episode begin, and I hope you enjoy it. You sure you can handle this type of junk? You ready? Are you? This is for our love of a galaxy far, far away. It's a galaxy as big as our imaginations, but it feels close like a member of the family. This is Forever Star Wars. Hello there. At the edge of known space, adventure awaits. To find it, you must travel to the distant outskirts of the galaxy's reach, far beyond worlds like Ratatak or Bakura. There are no hyperspace lanes here. This is wilderness. Black Spire Outpost on the planet Batuu was once a prosperous and bustling last stop for travelers seeking fame or profit in the vast, uncharted regions of wild space. But when the hyperspace lanes were established, Batu became little more than a detour. Its days of acclaim have since passed into memory, but it remains a preferred port of call for smugglers, spice runners, black marketeers, or thrill-seeking tourists like us. I'm Mark Marquis, your host for this special episode of Forever Star Wars, where I'll share tales of my time spent visiting the unique and distinctive experience that is Galaxy's Edge in Walt Disney World, Florida. I'll go into detail about the sights, sounds, and smells of the immersive world Disney has created. I'll give a first-hand account of what I experienced in three of the land's major attractions, and I'll provide a spoiler warning with a timestamp so you can jump ahead if you're trying to stay spoiler-free on what those attractions contain. But if you've been avoiding all promotion and marketing of Galaxy's Edge until you have a chance to experience it firsthand, you may want to skip this episode and come back to it later after you've had a chance to visit Batuu. We're creating a jaw-dropping new world that represents our largest single-themed land expansion ever. We're not just building one of these. 
We're building two. When Bob Iger, president of the Walt Disney Company, stood on that stage at D23 back in 2015 and announced the creation of a Star Wars expansion to the parks, Star Wars fans around the world celebrated. With the exception of a motion simulator ride called Star Tours, Disney had never attempted to create a Star Wars experience like this before. Actually, they'd never done anything like this, period. No one had. I wouldn't call myself a Disney fanboy, but we visited Disney parks a couple of times in my youth, and I've always had a love for theme parks and an interest in the engineering that brings that entertainment to life. Putting Star Wars in the hands of Disney's Imagineers was a decision full of exciting possibilities. Instead of recreating a place or recreating scenes from the Star Wars movies, like Disney's done historically with its own films, Galaxy's Edge would be a brand new location, a never-before-seen environment. But it would be uniquely Star Wars. And it would be canon. I agreed with this approach. It allowed visitors to discover something new in Star Wars, while remaining true to the spirit of what makes Star Wars endure generation after generation. And there would be a sense of immersion like Disney had never attempted before. It was exciting to imagine, but I also wondered how they could pull it off. Would I feel as if I'd stepped into Star Wars when everyone around me was pushing baby strollers or wearing sunglasses and Mickey ears? What about the commercialism? As much as I like Disney World, it's essentially a giant shopping mall. And it's expensive. Very expensive. Galaxy's Edge would be an experience some fans simply wouldn't be able to enjoy. And did I want to see t-shirts and churros and souvenir mugs for sale in my immersive Star Wars environment? In 2019, at Star Wars Celebration in Chicago, the Coca-Cola Company unveiled the Star Wars branded Coke products that would be sold in Galaxy's Edge, and my eyes nearly rolled out of my head. I wasn't having second thoughts, mind you. I just wanted Disney to get this right. And let's face it, if I was worried about commercialism mixing with my Star Wars, I was being more than a little disingenuous. Fortunately, when I finally got to see Galaxy's Edge for myself, all those concerns evaporated. I'd planned my trip to Walt Disney World Resort for February 2020. I'd spent months avoiding any promotional materials, commercials, or YouTube videos about the park attractions. It had been a long seven months to avoid spoilers. I knew much of what I was going to see, but I tried not to see much of it before I could visit it in person. On our first day at Disney's Hollywood Studios, I was accompanied by my husband Steve and my younger brother Brandon. For my entire life, Star Wars has been something I experienced with family, so it was fitting that my family was with me on this day. Walking through the tunnel that bridges the rest of the park to Galaxy's Edge, I became aware of a change in the ambient music. Inside the tunnel, the music softened. It became dreamlike. But as we neared the exit to the tunnel, the music disappeared. It felt as though we were truly passing from one reality into another. The first thing I noticed about Galaxy's Edge was the little Star Wars touches on everything. The park lamps were bulky and industrial. The landscaping featured exotic foliage, including lots of succulent plants with unusual shapes and waxy surfaces. The pavement below our feet contained the tire treads of droids that had left their mark as they rolled along the pathways. The sun-baked buildings had similar domed roofs, giving the architecture of Black Spire an organic but uniform consistency. Their exteriors were weathered and streaked by chemical stains. Everything had that lived-in look that Star Wars is known for. And above it all were the spires themselves. Although appearing as rock formations, the spires were actually the remains of giant fossilized trees. Brightly colored patches of rust and green and brown lichen covered their craggy surfaces. Some of the spires were a lighter gray, adding to the forced perspective illusion that they were farther in the distance. Everything in Black Spire, from the smell of roasted ronto meat to the sound of exotic music, contributed to the feeling of immersion. It made a solid first impression. But the effect was not quite as seamless as I would have hoped. 
For instance, many of the drink and food items on menus had undergone a name change in the subsequent months since the park's opening. Galaxy's Edge had modified these items so that they weren't quite so alien-sounding. I suppose visitors wanted to know that dishes such as roasted Endorian tip-yip was actually just chicken salad. Not everyone was an uber Star Wars fan like myself. Another thing that somewhat took me out of the illusion was the fact that very few guests looked like they belonged in Star Wars. Brandon and I had chosen to create bounding attire for our first day at Galaxy's Edge. And if you don't know what bounding is, it's essentially cosplay light. Disney doesn't allow guests over the age of four to wear costumes, so many of the visitors choose attire that suggests a character or theme, but it does so with nuance. I actually had quite a bit of fun choosing my bounding attire by assembling shoes, pants, a shirt, and a jacket that would look like it fit into the Star Wars universe, but it wouldn't get me stopped at the gate by security. Galaxy's Edge needed more of that. More people dressing the part. It also needed more aliens. Or any aliens, for that matter. Other than Chewbacca, I never saw anyone walking around Batu who wasn't human. And it wouldn't have taken much. A Rodian here, an Athorian there. Even if they could have been high above on catwalks near the tops of buildings, it would have lent more to the feeling that we were in a galactic outpost with visitors from all reaches of space. But these were minor nitpicks. The immersion was so next level in so many ways, I just wanted it to be perfect. A highlight for any trip to Batu is having a random encounter with a local security, as Brandon learned the hard way. Because he had dressed the part, he was stopped often by the First Order stormtroopers, but he had his story ready. Telling the troopers he was in town only to experience the local pod racing, he was allowed to go on his way. You are dismissed. And the spires keep you. One of the reasons I waited until 2020 to visit Galaxy's Edge is because the star attraction of that land did not open at the launch back in 2019. Rise of the Resistance was the most ambitious theme park ride ever attempted, and Disney made the decision to open the park before the ride was ready to launch. This kind of soft opening allowed the Imagineers more time to work out the technical problems on Rise of the Resistance, but this also had an unintended effect. The public knew that Galaxy's Edge would not be a complete experience until Rise of the Resistance was open. This knowledge and a fear of suffocating crowds kept a lot of visitors away from Disneyland. Galaxy's Edge was plagued with reports of low crowd attendance, and the usual doomsayers of Star Wars predicted that Disney had a flop on its hands. They couldn't have been more wrong. When Rise of the Resistance finally opened, first in Walt Disney World, and then a month later at Disneyland, the demand was incredible. It was so high, in fact, that Disney had to incorporate a new virtual queue system to give people a fair chance to ride it. The boarding group system, as it was called, had a very specific rule. In order to secure a chance to ride, you had to be present inside the park at park opening, logged into your My Disney Experience app on a smartphone or smart device, and everyone you intended to ride with that day had to be in the park with you at the same time. It created a stressful dash to secure a chance to ride each and every morning at the park. I studied this process for months before our trip. I was even able to practice from home. I created a thread on Twitter with details of how the process works, so if you'd like some tips, be sure to follow me there and look for those pointers. I'll give my Twitter handle at the end of this show. My months of research and prep paid off, because on this morning, I got us boarding group number three, out of more than a hundred. So we were among the first groups of people allowed to ride on that day. When our boarding group was called, however, we found the ride closed due to technical problems. I knew from reports about the ride that this was common. Every day, the ride experiences delays and shutdowns. Sometimes those shutdowns happen when guests are in the middle of the ride. Sometimes the shutdowns lasted hours. There was no way to predict how long it would take. Fortunately, we only waited 40 minutes, so we were finally allowed inside. I'm about to give a very detailed description of what we experienced in Rise of the Resistance. If you want to skip the spoilers, jump ahead to 24 minutes, 5 seconds. Still with me? Okay then. Here's what we found inside the most popular ride at Walt Disney World. 
Since All of Galaxy's Edge takes place in the time between Episode 8, The Last Jedi, and Episode 9, The Rise of Skywalker, the Resistance is on Batuu trying to recruit new members for the cause. The entrance of the queue is guarded by an imposing DF-12 comm turret. The queue winds through passages and tunnels that the Resistance carved out of the ruins of an ancient temple. The Rebellion has a penchant for turning old ruins into secret hideouts. The tunnels feel familiar and authentic. The walls in some places contain long grooves as if they were carved out of solid rock. They call to mind the ice caves of Echo Base in Episode 5, The Empire Strikes Back. Along the way, we spot lockers filled with pilot suits, helmets, and weapons. Any and everything associated with the men, women, and species who make up the Resistance. We then enter a room with large equipment and an enormous hollow emitter. BB-8 greets us and continues to work diligently at whatever it is that BB-8 does for the Resistance. A transmission crackles, and there before us, Ray appears as a hologram to brief us on our mission. Recruits, thank you for joining the cause. A covert resistance team led by my friend Finn has infiltrated a First Order Star Destroyer that is now headed to this system. Your outpost on Watu is no longer safe. We have transports waiting to take you to General Organa's secret base on Pokhara. I'll regroup with you there. The Resistance desperately needs your help in our fight against Kylo Ren and the First Order. Remember, it is vital that you keep the location of the Bukhara base secret. Roger, this is Black Leader. I hear you're a fine-looking group of recruits. Well, no time to waste. Let's get you on your way to the General. After Poe checks in, the doors of the room open, and we find ourselves back outside. Stand clear. Dead doors opening now. We walk past Poe's X-Wing and towards a small blockade runner transport. After we assemble inside the ship's hold, we are greeted by Lieutenant Beck and Nine Numb, both in impressive animatronic form. Transport takeoff in 20 seconds. I'm a magnetic anidara review. Good. Airspeed sensor? Nephew! Thank you, Nine Numb. Black Leader, are you and your team ready? Affirmative, the engines are hot. The ship rocks and I steady myself against a pole as we take off. Through the viewports, we see the Black Spire outpost grow smaller as we breach the atmosphere and enter space. But moments later, we're captured by a First Order Star Destroyer. It pulls us slowly into its docking bay with a tractor beam. Beck warns us that the First Order will try to interrogate us, and he implores us not to give away the location of the Resistance base on Bakara. We're confronted by the sight of a massive hangar bay. A TIE fighter is parked on the nearby wall. Dozens of First Order stormtroopers stand silently in formation at the hangar's entrance, beyond which is the blackness of space, with patrolling TIE fighters occasionally flying by. The scale of the interior is incredible. We may be at the mercy of the nefarious First Order, but by this point, I can't wipe the goofy grin off my face. I am inside a Star Wars movie, and this is still only the pre-show. The ride itself hasn't actually even begun. After allowing us a moment to, quote, document our incarceration, end quote, the First Order officers gruffly escort us further into the Star Destroyer. We're divided into groups and told where to stand to await interrogation. The cast members dressed as First Order officers never break character pacing slowly in front of us, giving us the once-over and reminding us that they're in charge. A group of about 15 of us are taken into a nearby room where we await our interrogators. They turn out to be none other than General Armitage Hux and Supreme Leader Kylo Ren. Enemies of the First Order, we will soon snuff out your meager resistance. You chose the wrong side and now you will pay. The resistance prisoners. Both figures are clearly screen projections, but their placement on a balcony above us and the use of shadows that they cast on the ceiling overhead really add to the illusion that they're right there in the space with us. 
Both men are called away to the bridge, so they leave us alone. I'm standing near the wall, and I notice the sounds of someone working quietly on the other side. I wonder if our resistance friends have found a way to reach us. Sure enough, a white-hot beam forms a rectangular shape in the wall as an opening is cut. The hole opens up, and a member of the resistance appears and urges us to hurry into our escape transports. This is where the ride actually begins. But I feel as though I've entered the ride much earlier. The variety of environments that we move through to reach this point add to the sense of immersion. And I'm also impressed by how story-based the experience feels. We're literally part of a Star Wars story. Our transport is driven by a black reprogrammed First Order droid, and Finn appears on a nearby screen to describe our escape route through the destroyer. Take this corridor to the turbo lift, then head down to the escape pod base. Those droids are programmed to return you to Batu. Hurry and don't get caught. Return back to guide you. Recruits, for your safety, stay seated with seatbelts securely fastened. Keep hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the transport and supervise your children. As our escape commences, we dodge detection from a probe droid. Race through a room with giant AT-ATs looming high above. We back into an elevator and narrowly avoid their blaster fire. There they are! Fire! Damage from the blasters appears on the walls, likely some kind of projection technology. But I'm having too much fun going along for the ride to waste time figuring out how it's all done. The dash to escape Stormtrooper fire leads us right to the main bridge where animatronic versions of Hux and Kylo observe the Resistance fleet emerging from hyperspace. Our driver scurries us away, but Kylo takes pursuit. He appears in a hallway in front of us, so our vehicle reverses into a nearby lift. The doors close, but we can hear Kylo land on the ceiling above us. The glowing red blade of his saber slices through the ceiling overhead, and we bolt out of the lift as soon as the doors open. We are now inside a giant room with massive blaster cannons firing at the resistance fleet. The cannons recoil with each blaster bolt and our vehicle races between them, attempting to dodge as the guns rock back and forth. The scale of it takes my breath away. In the next room, we're confronted again by an animatronic of Kylo Ren, who pulls our transports closer using the force. There's no escape. But his attempt to capture us is interrupted by an explosion from a crashing TIE fighter, and we make our way into a nearby escape pod. We are now parked in front of a window, giving us a view of the battle raging outside. Our pod suddenly drops, and we are free falling through space, weaving in and out of ships, making our way back down to the planet. The terrain Batu races into view, then the spires, then the unmistakable buildings of the outpost, and we crash land and come to rest inside the remains of a large crashed ship. Your escape pods came in a little off target. Ground crews will meet you outside the wreck. Our brave droid escort takes us into the unloading station after we catch a glimpse of Lieutenant Beck in another escape pod. Great job, recruits. Thanks to your heroism, the location of the resistance base is secure. Bravo! Yes, R5, you too. As we make our way out of the exit, I reflect on my feelings about the ride. It was certainly one of the most ambitious dark rides I've ever seen. The attention to detail was unparalleled. It really made me feel as if I'd lived out an adventure in the Star Wars universe. But never at any point did I forget the fact that I was on a ride meant to simulate Star Wars. Some of the features of the ride made it feel more like a theme park attraction than something that would occur in Star Wars, but that was to be expected. I hope every Star Wars fan gets the chance to experience it at least once. It's definitely impressive from a technical standpoint. The way the story unfolds and makes you feel as if you've been transported to a different place and then brought back is unlike any ride I've ever experienced. However, 
I'd spent weeks hearing all the hype from people who had gotten a chance to ride it already, and some described it as the best ride they'd ever been on in their life. I didn't walk out feeling exactly like that. Perhaps all the hype colored my expectations, or maybe I felt as if the joy of finally getting to ride it didn't quite exceed all the trouble and the planning it took to get on it. Maybe one day in the near future, it'll be easier to secure passage on Rise of the Resistance, but it doesn't look as if that day is coming soon. In summary, the star attraction of Galaxy's Edge is well worth the wait, but it'll be a few more years before I take on the challenge of riding it again. As we explored more of the outpost, we realized that although the size of Galaxy's Edge was not enormous, it felt larger because of the way the paths and buildings were laid out. There were staircases and levels and corners and alleys that were filled with so many details we could miss them if we didn't take our time. For instance, as we entered Merchant's Row, a collection of small shops and kiosks, we noticed water fountains on the left. Upon closer inspection, the fountains contain a water refilling station. Above that, two enormous tanks with clear windows. These obviously suggested a water source for the fountains. But while we stood there admiring the details, we saw the eye stalk of a Dianoga rise up inside one of the tanks. Merchant's Row is designed like a Moroccan bazaar, divided by large arches. The interior space is open to the sky. Ornate lamps, fabric canopies, and grates hang high above, casting long, intricate shadows on the cobblestone below. The shops include a Toydarian toy maker, whose silhouette can be seen hard at work in the window above. The toys are all handcrafted and they feel authentic. There's a snack stand with popcorn, a Bith jeweler, Black Spire outfitters which sell Jedi robes, and my favorite kiosk is the creature stall. We find a loth cat curled up inside a crate at the entrance, its tail flicking back and forth with contentment as it naps. The fauna inside available for adoption includes Rathtars, Tauntauns, Puffer Pigs, and even Kowaki and Monkey Lizards. On Black Spire Outpost, at least, they're valued as pets instead of food. Speaking of food, Ronto Roasters features a large pod racer engine suspended from the ceiling, and it fire roasts chunks of meat turning on a spit. The crank is operated by a droid that spends much of its time worrying that it'll never get its due respect as a chef. I'll never be a famous droid chef at this, right? We didn't sample much from this restaurant's menu, just a breakfast wrap, which was essentially a hot dog inside a pita bread with some scrambled eggs and cheese. It was typical theme park food, but it was tasty and filling. Much later, we visited Black Spire's other restaurant option, Docking Bay 9, which is run by none other than Maz Kanata's own personal chef, Strono Tugs, affectionately known as Cookie. The theme of this restaurant is, as you might have guessed, a docking bay. It's filled with large open shipping crates that serve as seating areas. Racks of alien fish and exotic marine animals hang on poles. And Cookie's own ship, a utility transport, is parked right on top of the building, its engines firing occasionally in glowing bright blue. I can't speak for the others in my party, but the roasted Indorian tip-yip that I had there was delicious. One of the nearby sites we skipped the first few times we walked past was Doc Ondar's Den of Antiquity, with its oval-shaped doorway. Standing outside is a tall, beautiful Jedi statue, alongside urns and crates, no doubt containing rare and unique relics from around the galaxy. There was a long line at the entrance each time we passed, so we chose to come back later. I'd been a little disappointed in the selections within the Merchant's Row Bazaar. Where were the legacy lightsabers? I wanted to find Ahsoka's. What I didn't know is that the best merchandise wasn't in these kiosks. It was in Doc Ondar's. When we finally went inside, I felt as if we'd hit the motherlode. Just inside the door hangs a base relief quadriptych. I quickly recognized it as the art that hangs on Palpatine's office wall in Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. Inside, Doc sits in his custodial alcove on the far side. On the right side of the shop are Jedi collectibles and merchandise. On the left, the Empire and the Sith. 
shelves full of Jedi and Sith holocrons and a variety of kyber crystals of different colors fill a nearby wall. The shop's second level is inaccessible to guests, but the items on display there are even more cool and rare, though they're not for sale. If you squint, you can spot many unusual and familiar items from the movies and TV shows, including a life-size wampa, the mounted heads of a Nexu, a Tauntaun, and an Anuba, various kinds of blasters, Imperial and Rebel pilot helmets, Mandalorian weapons, just to name a few. Ever since this shop was described to us at Star Wars Celebration Chicago, I'd been having slips of the tongue and calling it Doc Ondar's Den of Iniquity, which is pretty funny considering the iniquity is what it did to my wallet. The number and variety of pieces for sale is overwhelming, but as we examined the selection, we realized there were items here for Star Wars fans that couldn't be found anywhere else, not even at Celebration. The niche merchandise at Doc Ondar's includes a Sith obelisk, busts of Darth Maul, Obi-Wan, and the Emperor, Jipur snippets like the one Anakin gave Padme, Jedi Temple Guard masks, Jedi-themed journals with ornate covers, lamps like the one Yoda and R2 fought over on Dagobah, Yoda's walking stick, the Emperor's cane, Sith chalices, Padme's headdress from Episode 2 Attack of the Clones, a miniature Vader's castle, Imperial rank insignia, Jedi robes, comlinks, the Syndulla family calicori, Dejaric game pieces. They even have a USB drive that looks exactly like the data stick that Laura Santeca gave Poe on Jakku at the beginning of Episode 7, The Force Awakens. You can lose a lot of credits at Doc Ondar's Den of Antiquity. And from what I hear about Doc's reputation, you don't want to go into credit with him. But the most sought-after items on Doc's inventory included the very thing I've been searching everywhere to find. And there they were. Ahsoka's lightsaber hilts. They were waiting patiently for me inside a glass case. Inside the display were several other famous hilts, including those of Mace Windu, Asajj Ventress, Kylo Ren, Rey, Luke, Vader, and Maul. I'd spent months saving my credits, so I stepped right up to the counter and proudly said, I'll take the Ahsoka lightsabers, please. Both of Ahsoka's saber hilts came inside a handsome, satin-lined carrying case with her fulcrum symbol on the front. In total, the haul from my visit to Docks included the two lightsabers, a Jedi holocron, and two kyber crystals. I left Doc Ondar's quite pleased, but with a much lighter wallet. As much as I loved owning the legacy sabers for one of my favorite characters in Star Wars, the best experience I had at Galaxy's Edge involved building my very own. I'll get to that shortly. experience on Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run puts you straight in that cockpit, right behind the controls, whether you're one of the pilots, the gunners, or flight engineers that are keeping the ship operating. It is going to be an intense, super fun experience on the fastest ship in the galaxy. We've all seen the photos of the life-size Millennium Falcon parked at Galaxy's Edge, but I was still blown away seeing it in person. There are two ways to approach it, and both are spectacular. You can either come to it by climbing steps near Doc Ondar's, where you're slightly elevated and looking down at the magnificent piece of junk, or you approach from the First Order section where the Falcon comes into view, framed by a giant arch. I wanted to get close and study the details of its hull, but we seized the opportunity to get in line for Smuggler's Run while the wait times were still decent. I'm now going to describe what we found inside. If you want to skip these spoilers, jump ahead to 39 minutes, 28 seconds. That's where I'll give my spoiler-free closing thoughts about the ride. We didn't spend a lot of time studying the details of the Falcon at first, but the queue for the ride gave us more opportunities to gaze upon it from different vantage points, both low and high. The interior queue of the building winds through a mechanics bay. We spot several easter eggs, such as an unfinished game of sabacc on a nearby table, and an astromech droid that's been turned into a garbage can. Music from the local Outer Rim radio station plays nearby. 
The centerpiece of the garage is a large engine that sometimes fires up as the voice of a mechanic on the PA system runs through its diagnostic settings. Eventually, the queue brings us face to face with someone I know well from the Rebels and the Clone Wars animated series. It's impressive to finally see Hondo Anaka standing in seven-foot glory, high above on a catwalk in animatronic form. Listen carefully and remember, the better you work together, the more you earn. And if and when you are successful, the rewards will be astronomical for me. And you, of course, for you, after all, even split 70-25 minus your 10% of 25. We're then broken up into teams of six, and my brother and I luck out for our first time riding, and we're given the job of piloting the Falcon. While we wait for our mission, we're taken into the interior of the Falcon, and allowed to roam and explore the Falcon's famous lounge with its unmistakable hollow chest table. When it's finally our turn, we're told that Brandon will control the pitch, and I will control the yaw. I'm more than okay with this assignment, because Brandon's many years of playing video games makes him superbly qualified to pilot up and down. We're then called up and proceed to the cockpit, where we listen to further instructions from Hondo. Our mission is to fly to the planet Corellia and hijack a shipment of coaxium. Move out, my friends. See you in the cockpit. I won't be in the cockpit, of course. It's a figure of... You're still here. Go, go. Time to buckle up. You might want to buckle up, baby. The cockpit moves in every direction, as you'd expect from a motion simulator. But the way the exterior takes up your entire field of vision, just beyond the windows, adds to the realism. The videos don't do the experience justice, because all your senses are telling you that you're actually flying the Millennium Falcon. The visuals outside do look a bit more video gamey than I'd prefer, but I don't mind. When we finally get the chance to pull that lever that activates the hyperdrive, and the stars go long and that hyperspace tunnel of brilliant white and blue light opens, it's enough to give me chills. As we emerge from hyperspace, the planet Corellia looms fast and large in front of us. Suddenly, we're racing down to the planet's surface to find our target. The crew positions behind us include two gunners and two engineers. Brandon and I do our best to keep the ship from crashing into obstacles. The gunners fire weapons at the TIE fighters, and the engineers make sure to press the correct buttons to repair any damage done to the ship. They also fire the harpoon when we get close enough to the train to snatch the coaxium. This is Star Wars, however, so nothing goes according to plans. At one point, we find ourselves hurtling down a long shaft, where a cargo container breaks open at the bottom, spilling the coaxium. Our first catch of the day. Hondo picks up the container with his ship, and we fly out of the chamber. We get another chance to harpoon the train for more coaxium, but a First Order gunship appears to thwart our plans. After a second shipment is captured, Hondo suggests we create a distraction for the First Order and tells us to fire upon the remaining coaxium inside the train. Fire the missiles at the train! Hurry! As the white-hot ball of plasma blooms in front of us, threatening to engulf the Falcon, we dodge the destruction and hit the boosters to make our escape. Hit the boosters! We point the ship towards home and hit the hyperdrive, but before we come out of hyperspace, the drive malfunctions and we find ourselves in Batu's dense and deadly asteroid belt. We dart and weave through the massive boulder field and discover we have a few TIE fighters on our tail. We've got company! After a brief dogfight, we speed down to Batu's surface, narrowly avoiding the spires. And Chewie takes control of the autopilot, much to our relief. He guides us back into the subterranean landing bay of Onaka's Transport Solutions. My experience with Millennium Falcon Smuggler's Run was the exact opposite of Rise of the Resistance. The ride had been open for months, so I'd heard a lot of mixed word of mouth. 
Some loved it. Some were underwhelmed by it. So I went in thinking it would be a fairly decent, if not spectacular, variation on the other motion simulator ride, Star Tours. I found Smuggler's Run to be so much more than that. Since I was strapped in as a pilot in the cockpit of the Falcon, I felt much more like part of the action this time. The overall ride concept was more focused and simple, which allowed me to feel more like a character in the story. I don't know, maybe it was just the luck of being picked as a pilot for my first time. It left me feeling giddy as I exited. I would definitely put Smuggler's Run at the same level as Rise of the Resistance. One is maybe a tad overrated, the other a tad underrated. That makes them more equally enjoyable in the grand scheme of things. Now, if Galaxy's Edge could just add one more e-ticket attraction on the scale of these two, it could be a theme park unto itself. Exploring more of Galaxy's Edge, we found an area occupied by the First Order. Here sits the ominous Thai Echelon ship next to a catwalk and a series of tanks. A large red First Order banner is draped over a nearby building. There's a shop on the other side of the Thai Echelon that sells Stormtrooper merch and apparel promoting the First Order. I wondered how the shop owners of Black Spire felt about selling First Order propaganda, but decided they probably didn't have much of a choice. This area is where we saw Kylo Ren and his troopers and First Order officers patrolling the streets and interrogating random visitors. Out of my way. Well, don't let us keep you, traveler. Sometimes, live-action dramas would play out with Kylo addressing the residents and visitors of Black Spire from the landing pad of his TIE Echelon. The catwalks here and in other areas of Galaxy's Edge suggested that these kinds of dramas play out several times a day, involving different characters, including Vi Marathi, the resistant spy that we only got to see once. I wish there was more of this at Galaxy's Edge. In my opinion, there should be living stormtroopers pacing the catwalks at all times, just to sell the illusion that you're in an occupied village. But I guess we weren't there at the right times, or maybe they scaled back on that kind of immersion. On the other side of the courtyard is the blue and green milk stand. Every Star Wars fan has wondered what blue milk tastes like, so I made sure to sample both flavors. The drink sold at the stand had an almost frozen slushy consistency. You can order them with or without alcohol. I think my favorite was the alcoholic blue milk because the sweetness of the rum enhanced the overall flavor, but other than that, I was somewhat indifferent to the taste of blue. Still, it was pretty refreshing, given how warm the days of our trips were. The green, however, was not much to my liking. It was supposed to have a citrus flavor, but there was something plastic tasting about it. It smelled like grass. It didn't suit me. This may be heresy to admit, especially on this podcast, but I feel like the blue and green milk don't hold a candle to frozen butterbeer over at Universal Studios. Just around the corner is the Droid Depot, where visitors to Black Spire can build their very own droid. I'd seen the droids and decided they were little more than remote-controlled toys, which don't really interest me that much, so I had a hard time justifying the $99 price tag. Unlike the build-your-own-lightsaber experience, which I'll describe in a little bit, the Droid Depot is less an attraction and more of an interactive gift shop. But I have to admit, it's still pretty cool. After selecting the type of droid you want to build and paying for it, you pick the parts of your droid from a conveyor belt that snakes through the shop containing hundreds upon hundreds of random droid components. The parts come in several colors, and you can mix and match based on what kind of droid you're building. You then take the components to a building station where shop workers are available to assist as you assemble your droid. The shop worker then takes your assembled droid, places it in an activation chamber, you press a button, and a series of operational diagnostics light up one by one until your creation is a fully active and alert droid. The shop also sells a wealth of upgrades that you can add to your droid, such as different personality chips or decals or mechanical arms and attachments. It just didn't seem like my thing, but it was still a fun concept. Oh, by the way, if you have $25,000 just lying around somewhere, you can have a fully functional, life-sized R2-D2 movie quality prop for your very own. 
It's just pocket change, right? Because I had done my homework, I knew that resort guests of Walt Disney World who were staying at one of the Disney hotels were allowed to book their restaurant reservations 180 days in advance. When you think about it, this is kind of ridiculous. Having to decide where you're going to eat that far ahead of your trip seems a bit much. Nevertheless, it's essential to planning for Disney. If there's a particular restaurant you want to visit, you better make your reservations well in advance. With no table service restaurant in Galaxy's Edge, the closest thing that comes to this is Oga's Cantina, the local watering hole for Black Spire Outpost. You don't need a reservation to get in if you're willing to stand in line while guests with reservations are allowed in ahead of you. A visit to Oga's is still possible with no reservation, but you're going to wait a long time. The cantina is found in the space between the Millennium Falcon and the area occupied by the First Order. We showed up at our allotted time, got in line, and a cast member approached us and scanned our magic bands to see the time on our reservation. After only a few minutes, a host came out and led us inside the cantina, where we were shown to a booth already occupied by two other families. None of us knew each other. Sitting with strangers in a loud, raucous bar is not exactly my idea of a good time, but considering how Oga's is almost exclusively standing room only, I counted myself lucky that we were given a place to sit. The cantina grants you only 45 minutes to enjoy the experience, and there is a two-drink maximum. It was just my brother and I in the cantina, so he opted for two non-alcoholic drinks, and I chose two alcoholic ones. We were told that we couldn't get up and move about the cantina. If we wanted to take pictures of specific things, we'd be allowed to do that before we left. It's not a large interior. We could see almost everything from our vantage point, including the droid DJ named R3X better known as Rex, spinning the jams inside a booth. Rex is the same droid that used to appear in the old Star Tours ride back in the day, and he's still voiced by Paul Rubens of Pee Wee Herman fame. Brandon's two drinks included a carbon freeze and a hyperdrive. Mine were a Dagobah slug slinger and a Yubnub, the later of which was served in a very impressive souvenir mug depicting the Battle of Endor from the Ewok perspective. My drinks were quite good. The Slug Slinger was essentially a margarita. The Yubnub was much sweeter with passion fruit and rum. Both drinks were surprisingly strong, which is a good thing considering how expensive drinks are in the cantina. But I figured I was paying not just for the drinks, but also the environment. And that did not disappoint. The cantina has a festive party atmosphere, DJ Rex dances in his booth while the tracks blast. It's a noisy place, but that's to be expected in any drinking establishment. What I found most enjoyable is how much the bar staff get into their roles. At one point, they got the crowd hyped by leading everyone in a chant. But upon reflection, I'm not sure it's a place I would want to visit over and over until the crowds die down. I could see Oga's Cantina being a cool hangout if you could just walk in and take your place at the bar. But right now, the crowded space isn't conducive to much more than parking in one spot and nursing your drink for 45 minutes. I could also have used a little more intergalactic flair inside, such as bounty hunters walking around or sitting at various tables around the joint. Maybe when the cantina isn't as popular, they can consider doing something like this to bring the tourists back in. But unless you're a hardcore Star Wars fan who wants to see everything in Galaxy's Edge, or you're okay with well-made but overpriced drinks, Ogus might be something that you should skip. It was our second reservation experience that impressed me the most. If you ever have a chance to go to Galaxy's Edge and you're wondering if the build your own lightsaber experience is worth the steep $199 price tag, I'm here to tell you, yes, an emphatic yes. Once more, a spoiler warning for this portion of the episode. 
I'm going to describe the experience of visiting Savi's workshop and building a custom lightsaber and what I heard and saw inside. If you're planning to do this for yourself and prefer to save those discoveries for your own experience, skip ahead to 5657, where I'll wrap up with spoiler-free final thoughts. We found Savi's workshop tucked away in an unassuming corner of the outpost. The front of the building reveals nothing of its true purpose. To anyone passing who doesn't know what to look for, it just looks like a scrap dealer. As we approached the courtyard gate in front of the store, one of Savvy's workers greeted an elderly couple who were inquiring as to what was inside. Savvy runs this workshop, she explained. We collect scrap and salvage materials from around Batu. Do you have a reservation? She asked with a smile. The couple did not. The worker told them they would need a reservation to participate in the workshop so they nodded and walked away. I approached her next. We have an appointment for scrap reclamation, I said with a wink. She let us enter the courtyard and gave us instructions to select the parts for our construction over in the corner where a line had formed. Never at any time did any workshop employee say the word lightsaber while outside. First order ears, they were quick to mention, were nearby. After I'd selected and paid for the peace and justice style of my hilt, we were given a very discreet demonstration of what we could expect assembling our keepsake inside. Our group was then led inside where my brother and I took a station at an oval-shaped workbench. I estimate there were about nine or ten builders in our group. Each builder was allowed two guests to join them, but guests were instructed to remain quiet and not to wander around so my husband stood behind me and shot video of the ceremony using my phone. From the moment we were led inside, the feeling was one of reverence. We were about to undertake a very special task, and it was treated with utmost respect. Our instructor introduced himself as Kimbe. He and other workshop employees called themselves the Gatherers. Although they were not Force-sensitive, they devoted their lives to preserving the past in order to protect the future and they did this through the collection and assemblage of the most precious of Jedi artifacts, lightsabers. He then described the kyber crystal as the heart of each lightsaber and the various colors available, and which Jedi wielded that blade. The blue crystal, favored by great Jedi master Obi-Wan Kenobi, his apprentice Anakin Skywalker, and Rey. Green, Qui-Gon Jinn, Ahsoka Tano, Master Yoda himself, and <coughs> Luke Skywalker. A wave of nostalgia and emotion swept over me in ways I hadn't expected. As he held up each crystal, the ceiling glowed with that crystal's color. He was describing the fallen Jedi who were known by each of these colors. And these were the Jedi who meant something to me all my life. We may have been surrounded by strangers, but all of us grew up loving those same adventures. Two of my fellow builders across the table were young children, ages five or six. Their eyes brightened as Kimbe named the Jedi, and that's when my eyes began to mist. I was a little kid once, just like them, wide-eyed and enchanted by the story of Star Wars. But here, many years later, I could still feel that same awe and wonder. Kimbe instructed us to close our eyes and picture the color of the crystal calling to us, imploring us not to think about it, but to feel it. I composed myself and concentrated. I didn't have to think about it. I knew what color my crystal would be. I'd always known. When we opened our eyes, workers were holding canisters before us with the various crystals. With absolute assurance, I picked up a green one and placed it in a small dish in my workstation. Brandon also chose green for his protection and defense saber hilt. We were given a set of parts based on the style of hilt we chose. The chassis were the core of the weapon, in which there was a chamber for placing the crystal. Once the crystal was locked in place, the chassis began to sing to me, indicating it had come to life. I then placed the switch plates on it, which encased the crystal. It was fairly easy to figure out how the hilt should be assembled. The plates, for instance, have red and blue markers indicating where they snap on. I chose my hilt sleeves and the emitter piece and the end cap. 
It took a couple of attempts to figure out which direction the pieces should be turned in order to fit into place properly, but never at any time did I feel rushed or confused about the process. It was simple and intuitive. I made all of my choices for the parts rather quickly, and I managed to assemble it with little difficulty. Right there before my eyes was my finished lightsaber hilt. I was the first builder in the group to complete the construction, so Kimbe came over to inspect it and compliment my work. Yes. Oh, that is stunning. Congratulations. Classic lightsaber of the Jedi Knight. After everyone in the group had assembled their hilts, the gatherers came around and placed each hilt inside a crystal stabilization chamber, which was an opening on the side of the table at each builder's station. Kimbe described this as a very dangerous process because the crystals had to be stabilized before the sabers could be activated. But suddenly, a familiar voice filled the room. Well done. Chosen a heart with skill you have. Chosen with heart. When joined, they are much more they will become. For you, it is time. Kimbe acknowledged the spirit of Master Yoda and told us it was time to complete our bond to the crystal and activate our saber. And activate! <laughs> Raise your lightsabers! You have built a lightsaber! Like the Jedi and the Sith that came before you, and like them, you too can change the galaxy. Remember, it only takes spark. The room was filled with the blue, green, purple, and red light of the blades, and the familiar humming and thrumming of their motion. Yoda's voice returned for one last time. Complete your lightsaber is. Light your path, it can. Choose your path, only you can. May the Force be with you. As Kimbe gave us final instructions for the care and protection of our lightsabers, he ended our workshop by reminding us that we were all as special and unique as the lightsaber we'd just built. And our journey to make a mark upon this galaxy had only just begun. To conclude these tales of my time spent at Black Spire Outpost, I wanted to describe Sabi's workshop last because it was, by far, the most personal and affecting thing I experienced in Galaxy's Edge. As a little boy, I dreamed about a galaxy far, far away and imagined myself having adventures as Luke Skywalker or flying the Millennium Falcon with Chewie or Lando. Galaxy's Edge allowed me to slip back into that place of wonder and innocence. It encouraged me to immerse myself in its stories and experiences and provided me with surprises and discoveries around every corner. The lightsaber I constructed in Savi's workshop is of supreme quality. It's heavy, it has metal components, and it doesn't feel like a cheap plastic toy. The experience of building it was magical. There was nothing contrived about that experience either. It's a special memory that I'll get to revisit every time I look at my lightsaber resting on its hilt stand. Galaxy's Edge is a place where Star Wars comes to life. You can see it, but also feel it, hear it, and interact with it in ways that were never before possible. The movies, books, comics, and TV shows of Star Wars have always offered us windows into a magnificent universe that sprang from the mind of George Lucas. The toys and action figures allowed us to play in that universe as kids. Galaxy's Edge invites fans of Star Wars to come from all over the world for a chance to step through that window and become one of those action figures for a day. It truly is a playground for the imagination. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. I left Galaxy's Edge feeling excited by the possibilities of what the future of Star Wars might hold. Just like Star Wars Celebration or the opening night of a new Star Wars movie, visiting Galaxy's Edge is a communal experience. The fan experience on the internet and in social media can be fraught with toxicity. Sometimes it's hard to feel good about Star Wars when so many people are angry about it. 
But I left Galaxy's Edge dreaming about the next chance to visit. And who would I bring with me? Or what new friends could I make while there? After feeling disappointment over the rise of Skywalker, it was just what I needed for a boost of Star Wars positivity. If you're planning a trip to Galaxy's Edge and you'd like some tips or pointers, follow me on Twitter, where I gave a breakdown of the process of obtaining boarding passes for Rise of the Resistance. My Twitter handle is DJMMarquis. That's D-J-M-M-A-R-Q-U-I-S. I'm also available to provide more advice or insight about planning a trip to Walt Disney World. I learned a lot during my preparation for this trip, so if you have questions, email clashingsabersnetwork at gmail.com and be sure to put Forever Star Wars in the subject line. Thank you again for your support, and until we meet again, may the spires keep you. The views and commentary of Forever Star Wars do not reflect those of Lucasfilm or Disney. All licensed sound and music are property of their respective copyright holders. Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars are not affiliated with Lucasfilm, Disney, or any of their subsidiaries. The commentary and production of this series is the property of Clashing Sabers and Forever Star Wars and may only be used with permission. Until next time, may the Force be with you. And always remember... Your focus determines your reality.